Greetings, travelers! Welcome back to Tales from the Enchanted Forest with Fox and Sparrow. This year, we thought we would celebrate the big holiday on February 14th, which, as we all know, is International Book Giving Day, by sharing this story with you, which is like kind of a book for your ears. That should be Audible's new slogan <laughs> Books for your ears. So this story started because I read something called Love and Color, Mythical Tales from Around the World, retold by Bolu Babalola. Um, one of the chapters was on Sia and Madi, but it reimagines Sia as a warrior, which made us realize that we obviously have to add this couple to our collection of lovers. Of course, we have Persephone and Hades, Hiku and Kovalu, Shireen and Khusrau. And now for this Valentine's Day, I mean book giving day <laughs> special we have Sia and Madi. I like this idea of like having all of these couples in our collection it almost feels like we're having a game show at one point and it's like <laughs> who knows their other half better first contestants are Persephone and Hades next up we have Hiku and Kuala if we just put them on Love Island together and say all right <laughs> now couple up or you know make new couples we'll oh. retell your stories we're so invested in all these couple stories. I'm not sure who would be the one to actually leave their partner for someone else. Well, Shirin and Khosrau, kind of. Like, she had that thing going oh, yeah. with Farod. And then, I mean, Persephone and Hades, she really liked Adonis. Um, so <laughs> it's... That leaves us not with very... Like, we don't have very many options left here. Okay. I think we would both watch the heck out of that show. That's all, all I'm saying. <laughs> that Love Island... <laughs> I'm telling you, Persephone and Hades, you know, people think like, oh my god, they're so loyal, they're so happy, and then Adonis shows up and Persephone's like, I might have to recouple, um, and then she has to fight with Venus for him. I mean, I've never watched Love Island, but if it's going to be these characters, I'm here for it. I'm here for the like, uh, mythology of it all. I've, I've tried watching Love Island, and it's, to be honest, I can't keep track of all the new people because I don't really watch reality shows as like a main thing. I don't know how people can just like sit there and watch a reality show on their own um, like completely without doing anything else. So I'm usually like playing a game or coloring or something like that. I'm doing something else because it's not interesting enough to keep my attention 100%. If I'm watching it yeah. with someone, then yes. But by myself, I'm like, I need to do something else. Um, so I was currently watching Love Ireland season two and I'm just like halfway through and some of the couple like they're just completely new people and i understand that's the premise of love island i get it but it's so confusing because i'll stop paying attention and i'll turn around and i'm like who's this person where did they come from <laughs> but anyway it's like it's the entirety of like the greek myths as well where you're like oh i thought you were with with her why are you all of a sudden with this person but you know that's just zeus <laughs> I like how it's not it's not like these people or anything. No, it's just Zeus. He's turned himself into an ant. The others are also kind of sketchy. No one oh, actually yeah. has any loyalty to each other. Well, Persephone and Hades are probably the most loyal of the bunch. I mean, some interpretations people are like, well, you know, he kidnapped her. She didn't really have a choice in the matter. Um, starting your relationship with Stockholm Syndrome sometimes works, sometimes doesn't. Oh, I'm not saying the relationship is good, but, like, I don't see Hades dating much else besides this. <laughs> but yes, so, besides putting these characters on a Love Island-type TV show or something like The Bachelor, this story of Sia and Madi, I think they make quite a cute couple, if sometimes confusing. Mm -hmm. 
the one issue I did have with the story is so I obviously read it in the book by Babalola but then I was trying to find a version of it that I could you know take a source from or I could dive deep into but I couldn't really find like an official source for it that was consistent there's obviously different retellings of the story and there are some versions that are a bit different but mostly what I ended up using was some articles that just compared different types of it and the different tropes and the different elements and then kind of patchworked it kind of like we did with the story of the Holly King and Oak King where the general story is quite stable but the little details that get added in are quite different so I've chosen you know one of the retellings and then just patchworked it together to the version I think is the best but obviously we'll have all of the show notes on our website so be sure to check that out for more sources and comparative notes. The beginning and end began with the love story of Madi and Sia. Wagadu had 99 villages and there was a well where the seven-headed serpent Bida resided. Due to a deal between the king and the serpent, Bida agreed to bring rain and gold nuggets to the kingdom, but in return, it wanted a beautiful young girl as a sacrifice each year. And so it came to be that the nobles would search high and low for a beautiful and pure girl to sacrifice. This year, the chosen one was Sia, the year of her upcoming marriage to Madi. So here, interestingly enough, we'd see a serpent creature that can summon rain, which is a characteristic of Thailand's Payanaga, as seen in Raya and the Last Dragon most recently. And then there's also the reference to the Southeast Asian Nagini, which are half human and half serpent creatures. So lots of different mythological elements already coming together uh, just in this opening scene before we even get to our main characters. Ooh, I forgot about that Raya movie. <laughs> we covered it. We even covered it on this podcast. I I quite liked it. I mean, I think we watched Raya and the Last Dragon and we watched Wish Dragon at the same time. Right. And I kind of liked Wish Dragon a little bit more because of the consistent storytelling. Yeah. Whereas Raya was a bit more ambitious with how much it wanted to cover and how much it wanted us to kind of suspend belief and rush through the different events like you know getting the ragtag team together and then defeating the monster and then the whole friendship storyline yeah. everything was kind of rushed i felt that really just needed to be a mini series like it had potential to be good mm-hmm. it was just for like the short span of a movie it, it could not do what it was trying to do justice yeah i think either it had to be longer or it had to be some kind of tv series or something I really, really did like the world building and I loved the characters and the dragon, obviously everyone else, but it was just, I think, really rushed for me. And then the comedic timing with the baby was quite odd. It was just too much. Yeah, it it needed some more jigging, but it was an ambitious film and yeah. Anyways, sorry, I just, I heard you say Raya, and it's like, oh yeah, that was a movie that came out a while ago. You're like, oh, I remember that movie. We watched that movie. We watched that movie. I think we did a whole thing about how dragons are, you know, the rain givers as opposed to the Chinese dragon, which is a fire breather. It was a whole thing. I'm glad it's now. It's like a repressed memory for you. (laughs) But it's too repressed. I'm like, should I be watching it again? Is this, but no, I think I should just leave it there. And it's false. Sia was the most beautiful girl in the empire at the time, and she quickly resigned herself to her fate. Her father sent a servant to Madi with the news that his bride would not be his and would meet her destiny on the seventh day of the seventh month after the last rain fell. 
Mari listened and told the servant to return with the knowledge that Sia's fate was not what she thought it was, and she would not meet it at the bottom of Wagadu's well. How would you feel if someone came up to you and be like, oh my gosh, congrats, you are the most beautiful girl in the empire. Side <laughs> note, you are now going to become a sacrifice. It's like, oh my gosh, really? But then, then it quickly becomes, oh crap, no. I think in this case, beauty would be a curse where you would hope your daughter wasn't the most beautiful. Um, and you would hope that someone else was at least, you know, just a smidge nicer looking in the next village over. But it seems like it's, it's probably one of those things that gets ingrained where you kind of know that there is a shot that you might be up for nomination or you might be up for the sacrifice because you know you're beautiful. So it's hard to say. I mean, I'd be flattered, but I'd be like, you think I'm pretty enough to sacrifice to this serpent? Oh my God. The Gen Z in me is like, oh my God. But you know, the other side of me is like, please don't, please don't. Do you think they had a pageant or anything to try and determine this? Or was it just a bunch of guys going around going, she's a 10, she's a nine. <laughs> like, what was I don't really the know. System? Maybe like some kind of weird Cinderella story where they go around judging you. But then also, I feel like in these kind of, so I do come from a culture as well where being, you know, pure is so important and held to a great standard and being, you know, uncorrupted. And in this case, I feel like if you were the most beautiful and then you did something either physically or, you know, to your actual body, like maybe putting a scar on your face or something like that to mar your beauty and make yourself, you know, less beautiful or less pure, I feel like the social repercussions of that would be just devastating. Mm. Um, So it's either, you know, become a social outcast in your community or be sacrificed to a serpent and save your community. So I feel like the choice isn't really, it's not the choice that I could make because obviously if it came down to me being sacrificed or me being beautiful, I would just, you know, pay someone to give me a scar or something, you know, like. Pain over beauty. I would, I would do something to mar the beauty. But obviously if your entire, you know, civilization, empire's fate rested on you, that's a very big weight. And a lot of people are self-sacrificing like that. So I think her deciding to just go along with it and, you know, take control and just let it happen is a good action in itself because it is a selfless action. It's like one of those things where like people are like, Cinderella is so kind. And I'm like, well, that's in itself a strength. Mm-hmm. No, I think there's nothing wrong. I have wrong. no idea what we were talking about. <laughs> I'm so sorry, but I just, I saw that line and I couldn't help but think, <laughs> how would you feel during that? That'd be such a, oh my gosh, thank you. But then crap, no. It's like, oh, actually... Are you sure? I have a sister. Um, so a few days later, Madi went to Sia's village to speak to her. When she arrived to see him, she was worried and begged him to please not kill Bida. The serpent's death would end the abundance of rain and gold. It would be the empire's ruin. She was willing to die as many had before her if it would allow all the others to live. Madi bid her farewell, but did not promise anything or reveal his plan. When he returned home, he went to his friend the blacksmith and asked him to spend an entire week sharpening his sword. At the end of the week, he thanked his friend, bid farewell to his mother, and rode off to the well. Why would you sharpen the blade for a week straight? (laughs) Over sharpening a blade can honestly just make it weaker and more prone to break. And for like that much, I honestly am convinced that either the blacksmith was like lying. He's like, yeah, I'm sharpening it for a week straight. But like he sharpened it the required 10 minutes and then just left it. (laughs) 
or Maudie handed him like a great sword and then the blacksmith gave him back a rapier and was like, here you go. It's the same sword, sharpening it for a week. It's kind of like one of those things where like a customer comes in and asks for something and you know that they don't actually want that, but they're like, oh, don't worry. If you sharpen it for a week, it'll be sharper. And you're like, "Mm, okay, yeah, come back in a week. It'll be sharp. But who knows? It could also just be, you know, hyperbole to showcase how sharp this sword was. Also, important to note, um, I think it might also be to do with the connection between, you know, sharpening it for an entire week, plus the connection with the seven heads. So the idea that it's sharp enough to cut through seven, you know, heads. Mm. I don't know. The number seven keeps coming up a lot. So I'm like, interesting. Maybe this is like some kind of repetition. um, Because usually with oral folklore and oral stories as well repetition happens quite a lot to keep the pacing of the story going so you know seven days seven months seven heads it comes up quite a lot here why don't you just get seven swords instead of just the one i feel like that would be very impractical but sharpening it for a week is very fine (laughs) (laughs) we have limits okay i'm splitting hairs here suspend belief but not too much okay cool 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 this is fine. Nothing will happen. But, you know, just a tip for everyone else out there. If you're going to go fight a seven-head monster, maybe don't sharpen it for a week straight. Just do, like, ten minutes or whatever is required, like, not that long, and um, you should be good to go. Although, another reminder, um, because I also recently learned this, you should sharpen your kitchen knives. Not sharpen them. There's something you do with them, with, like, the... Um, the blade to make sure it stays nice and sharp that I've never seen literally anyone do uh, except, you know, my fiance. And I was like, oh, are you supposed to do that? And he was like, yeah, it keeps it nice and sharp. And I was like, oh, I didn't know that. But there's lots of things we do that dull down the end of the knife. And that's why it's hard to cut through things. And let me tell you, using a, a sharpened knife is just, oh, cutting is so much easier. Anyway, that's just, you know, my kitchen tips with Fox. <laughs> Tune in next week. when we give some like cooking advice as well it's like next week what's in the pot with fox and sparrow fox and sparrow it's a stew and i don't know this bit's it's still a story it's still a story it's a stew of a story meanwhile sia had been led away and readied by the people of vogadu at night she led the procession to the sacred woods where the well was and sat on the sacrificial golden stool The nobles and praised singers sang to her, but also warned her. If she survived, that meant the serpent had rejected her for being unclean. Sia was still uneasy because she had not heard from Madi, but retorted that she did not know what the night held for her, but she knew that she was clean and pure. Everyone left and Sia waited for hours. Suddenly, she felt someone creep up behind her and turn to see Madi. Again, she begged him not to destroy the empire but he replied that this was their fate and it had been sealed. He would save his beloved at any cost. Ah, yes. This is like the age-old question of do the ends justify the means? Similar to the classic trolley problem. Is it better to sacrifice one life to save many, or is it better to not do that? (laughs) What do you think, Fox? Honestly, I come from a very biased opinion. I mean, if it was, you know... I would like to say, you know, I'd be so selfless. I'd save an entire kingdom. But you put my mom up there or, you know, people I don't really interact with. And I'd be like, yeah, my mom. 
the emotional choice would be I think I would still choose my mom or you know my fiance or mm-hmm. you know my dad whatever it was I feel like it's just humans are just so self selfish in some ways that occasionally it blinds us to what the greater good is but then you have the opposite problem where some people go too hard for the greater good and they you know decide oh let's go crazy with the fact that this will better human society and it's something insane like eugenics and you're like all right that's too far but I think it's it's double-edged there are people who would say oh hypothetically I'd save the empire obviously um but there are people who just couldn't and if we're being honest with yourselves, like, you know, you put, you know, your child up there, you put your lover, you put your mom, your dad. It's really hard to say that you wouldn't save them. Specifically if you could also do something to protect them as well. Like if you were standing there with a sword and someone rushed at your parents and they were like, oh, don't worry. Well, you know, the entire community will get tons of rain and that'll feed, you know, the crops and you guys won't starve that's something in the future so it's a lot harder for us to think through it and go ah, okay you know the future will be better for it because you know in the future what's one life to the life of many and more people will eventually die if I you know save my parents but you just react right you just react in that moment and you're like I have to do this so to some degree it is selfish but it's kind of that understandable selfishness that comes with having powerful emotions for someone is that you can't just step aside and let things happen to them Mm-hmm. And in this case, I think it might have even been like a, we'll deal with the repercussions after, but this is what's happening immediately. Yeah. None of this would be easy decisions, but I find mm-hmm. it much more bearable to think, okay, if I'm sacrificing my own life. Like, I'm very familiar with it. I know it weighs. And it's like, okay, I can give that up. But you're right. Like, if I saw, like, my parents there, my sister, my brother up there, I would be like, heck no, swap me out, <laughs> put me in coach. Like, I, that's, they're not going down. Yeah, and I think that's where it is. Like, Sia is in the position where she is willing to sacrifice herself. Like, most of us, like, if you said, you know, if you die now, I will, you know, the entire planet will be better for it, like, 100% guaranteed. It would be very hard to say no to that to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um Or, you know, it's one of those things where you would take the position of the person being sacrificed, but just to stand by and you can't take their spot, you can't help them. It's just, you have to let them die. It's, it's, I think that's too much to ask. Yeah. Obviously, like, you know, greater scheme of things, not important, you know, what's one life. But that's, I think, what makes us really human is that it's important to us. That one life is important to us. Yeah. Again, very selfish, but understandable selfishness. It's true, but it's also why this story is, there's a lot of reasons the story is interesting, but one of them is the, it does ask that philosophical question we keep asking ourselves. I know people who hear that question like, oh my gosh, I hate that question, because they give some of these same answers, but we still see this keep coming up. Like, it is still important for people to think about, like, what are you willing to do for the greater good? Is do mm-hmm. the ends justify the means? Anyways. And there are like entire branches of philosophy you could look at that decide, you know, the greater ultimate happiness of the majority is more important than the happiness of the individual, whereas others, you know, think that the individual happiness make up the collective good. It's just, it's all, we could deep dive into, you know, the philosophy of happiness, but it, it's a wide span. And I think the reason why there's entire branches of philosophy about it is because people are so divided and they tend to fall into kind of these camps of, the greater good outweighs the individual, whereas other people think the individual outweighs the greater good. And other people just think, you know, 
it's all relative it's all relative to you know who the person is who they're related to you know how they feel like everything is just connected so maybe you kill this one person but that's just not like one life isn't always equal to another it's it's a whole thing tune in next week and obviously (laughs) yeah (laughs) tune in next week for our philosophy uh, lectures after our cooking show yeah we study kant and aristotle and see who was right Obviously, Mahdi here has made his decision, and so he stalks away to the side of the well, and they both kind of just waited to see what would happen. The time finally came, and it was this time of spirits where the barriers between the worlds were kind of lax, and this is the time when the serpent comes out and possesses his offerings. Everyone knew at this point the serpent had seven heads. The first one was silver, the second was gold, the third was fire, the fourth was black, the fifth was white, the sixth was red, and the seventh was normal. This seventh head was always the first to come out of the well, and then they would rise out in reverse order if the sacrifice was pure. Somehow, Mahdi knew about the order of the heads, so as soon as the seventh head rose, he sliced it off. He then cut off each head until the first head rose up and lit the world with silver light. Before he could sever it, it let out a cry that resounded throughout the empire. The fearsome creature rained down its curses with its dying breath. I swear by the Lord of the seven-headed being for seven years, seven months, and seven days, Wagadu will not receive a drop of rain or gold. Despite hearing this, the ever-stubborn Mahdi swung his sword, and the serpent's last head joined the others. Now this is the part where most of the stories end. Wagadu is cursed, but Sia and Mahdi get married and weather the storm. Um, However, I did find this extra part... And I quite like the element of bringing the mother into the story as well, so I am going to include it here. But obviously, if you've heard the story growing up, or if you've heard other versions of the story, this is most likely where it would end, with the curse. Before Mahdi left, he took off his left shoe, scabbard, ring, and cap. He gave them to Sia and told her to guide the nobles in their search for the culprit. But why? Why should she help them find him? <laughs> I think it might have been to kind of take the heat off her, because obviously if people come and they see, you know, this the sacrifice still sitting there, one, they're going to think, oh, the serpent declined to have her. But then two, I think the idea would have been that they're going to be searching around for somebody, and Sia can't, you know, they might interrogate her, they might even go so far as you know, to torture her, whatever it is. So for her to kind of distract and take the heat off herself would be a noble thing to do. Because at this point, I mean, he's shown up to something that is a big deal for her. Yeah. Killed the creature that, you know, is for whatever intents and purposes, protecting and giving prosperity to their empire and left. So it would all kind of fall onto her. Whereas this gives them kind of like a, a, a goose chase to be like, oh, we got to go find this person. Excuse me. You show up to my <laughs> sacrifice and you ruin it. How dare you? <laughs> I mean, I think it's it's hard because I in some versions she does say she does offer, you know, why don't you know we run away at this point and he refuses so it's kind of like they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place of doing the right thing being selfish being selfless facing the consequences not facing the consequences procrastinating facing the consequences whatever it is it is quite a weird series of events because i feel like 
I personally would just grab my fiance and hightail it out of there and then be like, well, whoever's the next sacrifice, this is their problem. Yeah. I mean, that way her purity isn't questioned because the serpent isn't rejecting her. She's rejecting the serpent. But either way, he returns to his mother. So he doesn't even, you know, hide. He just goes straight back home. The next day, the nobles were surprised to see Sia seated on the stool. Those who hated her gossiped about her impurity, but others went over to question her more closely. However, when they got closer, they were shocked to see the decapitated heads lying by the well. Sia got up and presented them with Mahdi's items, but said she did not know anything else. The shocked nobles went to work systematically going from village to village in a Cinderella-style test to capture the owner of the items. Eventually, they made it to his village, and it was finally his turn. His mother insisted on coming with him and promised to put her life before his in the face of the Empire's fury. As you would guess, the sword fit his scabbard. His foot fit the shoe, the cap his head, and the ring his finger. After donning all his gear, he declared that he was the killer, in case anyone was still wondering. People rushed to grab him, but his mother stood between them. She roared at the crowds. I thought there were men in Wagadu, but I hardly see any here. You are afraid of the serpent's predictions that my son will not be killed because of a snake. My loincloth is better than all of your pants put together. During these seven years, seven months, and seven days, Wagadu's needs will be my responsibility. In return, my son will have his life with Sia. Okay. She said, you're afraid of the serpent's predictions. What if the serpent was just making stuff up and like, they were like, ah, this is so terrible, but like immediately it started raining or something? Like, how funny would that be? It's just like, oh, yeah, he was just making stuff up. We never need to do this in the first place. I mean, raining gold is quite a difficult thing to lie your way through. (laughs) You don't know. It could have been some other creature's blessing or something like that. (laughs) Mythical monsters just faking it for the crowds. (laughs) Kind of. I mean, it could have been. But I think it was quite a serious curse where because he was the one bringing the rain, that now that he's gone, the ring, the rain will stop regardless. Like, it's just a matter of fact. But it might have been, you know, with his dying breath, he called upon other beings to also intervene and stop any natural rain. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe the rain had been kind of an excess kind of rain to bring the fertility and growth and make it a bit more prosperous in neighboring kingdoms, whereas now they have to kind of rely on the weather like everyone else. Yeah, that's not fun. <laughs> Either way, well, the nobles dropped their heads in shame and accepted her deal. At the end of the serpent's curse, Madi's mother died, but the curse had still come to pass. Wagadu is barren. The Sonoki people dispersed, and it was the end of their empire. But at least, you know, Sia and Madi lived happily ever after, we think. We don't really hear from them about what they did in the end, besides getting married. It sounds like they at least got through the seven years, if nothing else. Um, yeah, but I mean, at the end of it, it wasn't like they weathered through it in a good faith, I think. It just, it, they tried their best, and then at the end of it, there just wasn't a reason to stay in the areas they were staying in, because the, farm the farming might have gone so bad. Oh yeah, for sure, and then eventually everyone scatters to the wind. <laughs> and this was the definite end of their empire, all because of two people who loved each other. I do like that the story does end with, like, Yep, there are consequences for your actions. There was no deus ex machina, like, but wait, we found the sword, and it says it will give us rain and gold. 
It's like, oh, don't worry. We had to go on a, a, a redemption quest to save the entire empire again. I mean, it's nice to have those kind of stories, but it's also nice to have ones where it ends with just like, yep, the curse happened. And just as the serpent predicted, it was the end of the empire. So enjoy. Yeah. If this were a video game, <laughs> this would feel like one of the bad endings. And you have to sit there going, hmm. Okay, what actions could I have taken to get in the good ending? <laughs> it's like, okay, see ya, Madi. It's, a, it's, you know, your performance review. Cute that you guys got married. Kind of unfortunate that everyone had to leave their homes, you know, their ancestral homes and go somewhere far away and restart. But then at least they could have told everyone, like, look, guys, here's the deal. There will be no rain. We all need to start, like, while we have supplies and stuff, start like migrating and finding other places get going i think maybe they had hoped you always hope with these things that at the end of the curse something will happen um the prosperity will come back a new diet a new you know serpent will show up or something will happen to turn the luck around in this case they bet on the wrong horse yeah i mean i do think for anyone who is interested in kind of a different take on this story i do think the love and color retelling is a very different take on it um sia is a warrior and they do have some more backstory to add to it so i won't spoil anything for anyone who does want to read it because it is a fantastic read so i do highly recommend going and checking that out for a different take on it as well so just like the end of the wagadu empire it is the end of our episode so it is time for our five fantastic finds Number one, before the serpent died, he used his last breath to curse the land for seven years with no rain. Seven years because seven is really the serpent's number, and lack of rain is directly counter to what was once his blessing. This curse is a poetic way to resolve the story. It follows through on the stakes previously set in the tale, and it's in line with the monster's powers. But I thought it would be good for us to establish what a curse is. Like magic and spells, it's one of those things people usually know, but I thought it'd be fun to take a closer look. In short, a curse is a wish to inflict pain or punishment onto another through supernatural means. They can be cast verbally or written down to serve as a warning. Curses spoken for an intended individual or bloodline are often personal revenge from the cursor. Like in today's story, these curses usually act as laser-guided karma to the target. On the other hand, written curses are less personal and are often left to guard a specific place or an item. As such, written curses will serve as a warning before a character opens a book filled with dark magic or enter a forbidden tomb. In these scenarios, characters may question if there is any weight to the curse at all, or if they are merely empty words. Sometimes it doesn't matter, since the idea of the curse may be enough to cause panic in those who disregarded the warning in the first place. There is so much to talk about curses that I'm sure we're going to come back and talk about more in other stories and other five fantastic finds in the future. Number two. There are many stories that relate to Bidda the Black Snake throughout Western Africa. The Wagadu Bidda is the serpent spirit in our story, and he's involved in the fall of Ghana. And again, this is the empire of Ghana, not the country of modern-day Ghana. After the death of the ruler Dinga, his two sons fought over the kingdom with his elder son winning. In retaliation, his brother made a deal with Bidda to protect him and give him victory. In return, he would sacrifice a virgin to him every year. From then on, the serpent god 
was a protector of the kings and would rain down gold for the prosperity of the kingdom. Now, in some retellings, Sia's fiancé was actually called Amadu, and instead of seven heads, the serpent regrows his head seven times. The couple then escapes, and the kingdom falls into drought. Another story from Mali was recounted by German Leo Frobenius in his book The Age of the Sun God. The first ruler of the Sanuki Griots was Dingha. After his death, his son was advised to meet with the snake and negotiate the sacrifice from ten virgins down to one. Bidda agreed and fulfilled his promise until one year Sia was chosen as the sacrifice and her fiancé, now from Mahdi to Mamadi, slayed the snake, bringing forth seven years, seven months, and seven days of drought. Now again, it is so important to note that this story is about the empire of Ghana, again known as Wagadu, and not just modern-day Ghana. And the story has lots of many different retellings and legends, and of course these variations differ, but where they stay the same is that there is a virgin sacrifice in order to bring about prosperity, and this sacrifice is given to the snake god, and then her fiancé slaying of the god includes a curse at the end. Number three. Sia was selected to be the sacrifice because she was a beautiful, pure maiden. While human sacrifice does unfortunately have some truth in history, the specific idea of pure maiden sacrifice is more rooted in stories like these than in reality. This disconnect is likely because, well, quote-unquote, pure maidens would be highly desirable, so people would likely not want to sacrifice them. Plus, once a pure maiden was chosen, like we kind of discussed in the story, she could easily make herself not pure or mar her beauty in order to live to see another day. So why sacrifice a pure maiden? Well, because it provides specific parameters. The only reason she is chosen is that she is pure. This parameter eliminates the question of why not someone else get sacrificed? Now the story can focus on Mahdi and how he will save her. That's right. A girl set up to die serves as a plot device, giving the male character angst and motivation to make the plot happen. Kind of reminds me of the fridging trope. So it kind of seems like the idea of threatening a girl's life in order to move a male character's arc forward has just been a thing that's been around a long, long time. Number four. Would you sacrifice one life if it meant greater happiness and prosperity for the rest of the kingdom? If you answered yes, then congratulations, you might just be a utilitarianist. The philosophy of ethics is a fascinating subject and is analyzed in all your favorite movies, TV shows, and books, even if you don't know it. Utilitarianism is the belief in the greatest amount of good for the greatest number of people, with the ends justifying the means. Jeremy Bentham's greatest happiness principle says that the goodness of any action should not be judged as good or bad by its intentions, but by its consequences, which he relates as human happiness. Now, as with any other branch of philosophy, there are lots of issues with the utilitarian principles, and this can be brought up with a classic trolley problem, as we mentioned during the episode. Even the trolley problem has tons of issues, because how can we measure happiness objectively for a large group of people? The idea of sacrificing a stranger for the greater good is fine in theory, but what if the sacrifice was someone you loved? Maybe instead of having five strangers on the track, it's five of your family members. Would that change your mind? Objectively, this should not change the equation of one life taken for hundreds of lives spared. But human emotions and motivations are not equations, and it's very difficult for us to separate our emotions from our consequences and from our philosophies. You can see why ethics and philosophy of ethics is such a mind-boggling experience. 
There are so many theories and ideas trying to understand intentions, motivations, emotions, consequences, justice, and virtue, not to mention seeing ethics on an individual level versus a societal level. So I ask you again, what do you believe in? Would you save the human sacrifice if it was someone you loved versus a stranger? If it meant that the entire kingdom would suffer the consequences? Number five. While the seven-headed serpent from today's tale is unique in its own right, I would be remiss if I didn't mention another iconic multi-headed monster, the Hydra. This Grecian mythological creature is a giant multi-headed serpent, dragon-like monster. I say multiple heads because the head count frequently changes. You see, Hydra has a nasty regeneration ability. When one head is severed from its body, two more take their place. The main story featuring the Hydra comes from Heracles' second labor. Heracles was tasked to kill the nine-headed serpent, which had a deadly poisonous breath. But of course, this is no problem for good old Heracles, who seems to be favored by the gods. Except for, of course, Hera, who hates him and specifically raised this Hydra to kill him. But that won't stop our boy. So, after bashing the serpent monster a lot, and seeing it grow more heads as he picked them off one by one, his nephew had this great idea of cauterizing the wound where the heads would grow back from. Because if you can't solve your monster problem with stabby weapons, why not play with fire? Luckily for them, this worked and stopped the head growing business real quick. After which, killing it became relatively simple and Heracles buried the last head at the side of the road. While regeneration is a neat trick, I think the seven headed serpent was more powerful. After all, it was able to curse the land for seven years after its demise, and the Hydra just became another footnote in the tale of Heracles. As always, if you want to see the show summary, then subscribe for updates on our website at www.talesfromtheenchantedforest.com. If you want to hear more from us, join us on Twitter at From Enchanted or on Instagram, Mastodon, or TikTok by our name. For question comments and guest requests, please send us an email at talesfromtheenchantedforest at gmail.com. If you have anything to share, then please don't hesitate. And remember, travelers, if you enjoyed what you heard today and what we do here, please give us a review on whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts. It helps the podcast grow and reach new travelers to join us on these adventures. And remember, there's always a place for you in the Enchanted Forest. <laughs>